Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. This is Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, after dark, meaning it's past 4 p.m. I love that you spring <laughs> these after dark episodes on me as a surprise all the time. I feel like I need to drop my voice an octave. Hello. Tonight, <laughs> our medical topic will be war. <laughs> what is it good for? Is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely bab, nothing. Bab. No, that doesn't fit there. <laughs> Sing it again. I was, I was... And this week, actually, I figured given that Veterans Day passed by so recently that we should do some kind of military general themed medical episode. And because I can't stick to just a single topic, I figured let's dive into history and do Civil War medicine. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something... We, we've definitely talked about medicine in the Civil War era before, but I know you very much wanted to put this all under one umbrella at some point. Well, so we'll cover a couple different things, but to just give you a grand overview, there were about eight different major accomplishments or major advances to medicine in the Civil War. So let's kind okay. of start breaking them down and, and getting into them, and we'll see what's changed from then to now. Some of the specific accomplishments that first started taking place during the Civil War in the U.S., which was when, Santosh? Uh, 17, no, crap, uh, 1820s? Okay, you grew up in Iowa. What? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I feel like this should be basic education I... in America. When was the Civil War? Yeah, I know. Listen, I okay. War for Independence, seventeen hundreds. Okay, seventeen seventy six. We declared independence and 
we had a giant war and then the you know some time went by and then we finally figured out ah slaves that's a bad idea and then there were some people who were like maybe good idea and we were like no and i think by then we got into the 18 1850s 1850s i'm so disappointed in you i really am what 1861 what? to 1865. Well, that's not okay. Fine. So I feel like it's <laughs> one of those years you should have known. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I genuinely am. So Folks, President in case Lin- you were wondering why I insist on these history episodes, my yeah. own co-host. <laughs> okay. The number of times we talk about ancient Egypt or the Victorian era, and this falls in neither. <laughs> so. You can't blame me entirely. It's it's before the Victorian era for sure. No, it's not. It's in the Victorian era. Victorian era was June. The Victorian era was June eighteen thirty seven till January nineteen oh one. I always think of it as like the latter part of you know like eighteen seventies and so. I didn't realize it was that broad. Yeah, that broad who was alive, Queen Victoria. (laughs) making it the victorian era dude i never put that together no i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding kidding. all right (laughs) let's let's rerail this train yeah so one of the first accomplishments and clearly an important one is accumulation of adequate records and detailed reports for the first time at least in the united states permitted a complete military medical history. There were so many people getting sick, injured, dying uh, during the course of this war that they were able to actually start collecting medical histories as a document. And this led to the publication of the Medical and Surgical History of the War of the Rebellion, which was identified in Europe as the first major academic accomplishment by U.S. medicine. Oh, nice. Of course, they've been doing academic medicine over in Europe for a really, really long time. But this is on this side of the Atlantic. Right. There were local town doctors, but nobody was really writing case reports, sharing things. You were just doing your day-to-day work, whereas collecting all of these military medical histories was the first major academic accomplishment. Next, there was development of a system of managing mass casualties, including aid stations, field hospitals, and general hospitals. And we established some of the patterns during the Civil War that would be used throughout the remainder, or at least up through the current military history, including World War One, World War II, the Korean War, and even to a much lesser extent, and we're not going to cover it, the wars in the Middle East. I really, really love this because... This is foundational for medicine. Everyone thinks of technology when we think of medicine, right? Advancing antibiotics or even things like hand washing. But it's not true. The advent of modern medicine is when we were applying objective, measurable, and statistical data into our practice so that we could change and improve it. That is actually the foundational work where science is no longer just a wisdom that's passed on from like masters to student, but that there is a collective knowledge that's being built through objective data. That's, that's not, it's free of like independent people just giving their opinion based on their experience. So I love these things together. One of them is going to help the individual, right? Taking actual like statistical data and putting it together. The other one is public health and epidemiology. 
That's awesome. There were a lot of different things. When you're talking about laying the the foundation for medicine, we were in a transitional period where the humoral system of disease was finally starting to fall out of favor, meaning, you know, illness is the result of an imbalance in the four humors. And germ theory hadn't quite been invented yet. So we're in this unsupported area of doctors know everything we knew was wrong, but we don't know what the right thing is quite yet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So some of the other things learned the importance of immediate definitive treatment of wounds and fractures was demonstrated and shown that major operations like amputations would optimally be carried out in the first 24 hours after wounding. This is all the way up to now wounds, but also sepsis. You have to act fast. Those first couple of hours are the ones that matter. And of course, the importance of sanitation and hygiene and preventing infection, disease, and death. I mean, this is really the first time America, short of the Revolutionary War, this is the first time America as an existing country really had a lot of mass casualties to deal with. Now, I will say, Josh, by this time, although it wasn't well settled into the zeitgeist here on this side of the Atlantic, Louis Pasteur had done his work by this time in the 1850s, and we didn't have Robert Cook yet uh, all the way in the 1880s, but miasma theory was going away along with the humors, and germ theory was coming up. We understood that there was something that we could attack in terms of infection, and it wasn't just bad air. So there was technological advancements in that kind of a sense, too, where things like biochemistry and microbiology were beginning to fold itself into affecting things like this, like battlefield medics, and impacting how we viewed the spread of things like gangrene. So let's start by talking a little bit about one of the better-known figures during this period, William Hammond, the Surgeon General of the United States Army and founder of the Army Medical Museum, where I found a lot of this information out. Oh, cool. Born in Maryland, grew up in Pennsylvania, and got his MD from New York University at the age of 20. After his internship and a couple months in private practice, he became an assistant surgeon in the Army. He had joined the Army in 1861 and worked there with Jonathan Letterman, who helped to develop the very first ambulances. Oh, cool. So this is horse-drawn at that time. And And we had a a beautiful talk on the first great uh, emergency ambulance systems actually formed by black people, actually, just a little while back, didn't we, Josh? The concept of the ambulance, which had just been recently invented in France by a general under Napoleon, was brought to the Americas by Major Jonathan Letterman, another surgeon who helped to create battlefield medicine and the triage system, which we've also covered in previous episodes. So when Finley, the 10th Surgeon General, was fired after an argument with Secretary of War, Abraham Lincoln, against his own Secretary of War's Secretary of War's advice and the normal rules of promotion named the 34-year-old Hammond to succeed him as the new Surgeon General in 1862, less than a year after joining the Army. Not bad for some advancement. Yeah, and, and I kind of understand why people would be upset. I mean, that's a young person and you know, not a lot of 
what people valued back then, which was just straight up experience. And yes, experience is very, very important. But when you have someone who's innovating the way that Dr. Hammond is, you don't want that type of uh, forward thinking to just get lost, you know, in the lower ranks. You want to make sure that that type of practice of innovating in in emergency care and public health that that's actually brought to the forefront as much as possible to your developing nation. So let's talk about some of the changes he implemented. You know, he this was somebody who really started to shake things up. At the beginning of the war, the requirements for becoming an army physician or surgeon were minimal at best. The term combat medic didn't exist during the Civil War or for decades afterward. Enlisted men were just pulled from the ranks to serve as hospital stewards. And although these men got some first aid training, really the only requirement, they had to be able to read doctor's notes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Josh, that is not easy, man. That's a, that's a hell of a requirement. <laughs> Yeah. So in order to be a medic, you just had to, you had to be able to read, which was already a problem, and then you had to read doctor's handwriting, which, <laughs> as we know from the from its inception, clearly was not great. To be fair, early doctors during this period, penmanship was one of those things that was trained in. So I don't know that we had the deterioration of the scribbly scribbly. Here's some of the reforms he launched as the Surgeon General, the eleventh Surgeon General. For those of you who play bar trivia. He raised the requirements for admission into the Army Medical Corps, and he also greatly increased the number of hospitals, paying close attention to the ventilation of the hospitals. Remember, this was when the miasma theory, or bad air spreading disease, was popular. Right. It was germ theory was trying to like overtake this, but it makes good sense anyway. We had known for millennia at this point all over the world that disease could spread through the air. As such, in order to make sure hospitals were keeping up with the standards he wanted, they were ordered to maintain much more complete records, which is what we talked about, forming the first real academic list of medical records from the military. And more importantly, he also wanted a whole bunch of specimens. Was something chopped off during the war? Send it over to Hammond. He created a museum today, which is housed at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Maryland. But all of these different specimens and diseases he requested created one of the earliest textbooks of case studies to train doctors after the war, which has been modified and to lesser extent is still in use today. Okay, okay. Um, so he founded the National Museum of Health and Medicine at that time called the Army Medical Museum and proposed a permanent military medical corps. So rather than just pulling a bunch of guys who could read doctor's handwriting into need as or into service as the need arose, he said, let's create a permanent section of the military devoted to medicine, give them a permanent hospital or the MASH, the Mobile Army Surgical Unit, and begin – centralizing where we distribute medications, add them onto the quartermaster. Interestingly, he also recommended that the service age of recruits be fixed by law at 20 years. Oh, okay. So you couldn't have any like newbie, newbie, newbies kind of thing. You you had people who at least were old enough, kind of mature enough to have some education under their belt. But this is really beautiful. This is a transition from you know, if you're somewhat capable, 
please, you know, show up so that you can just slap a couple of bandages on someone all the way to just like we specialize demolitions expert, or if you're infantry or cavalry, what kind of station that you sit in, in the army at when you're fighting, this also requires its own specialty healing people in order to make sure that troops are performing at their best and that they're cared for when they come back from the field and they're wounded. Yeah, so mortality under his reign decreased significantly and efficiency went up because he promoted people on the basis of competence, not rank or connections. Even his friend who he met, Letterman, who developed the ambulance system, before he was willing to institute it through the whole union, it was thoroughly tested and satisfied his own questions before he said, okay, let's make the whole army do this. So he's he's using, again, accrued evidence a very good basis for advancing knowledge, which is objective and kind of stats-based rather than, you know, we used to say like evidence-based medicine versus eminence-based medicine. And this is, this is the transition. It's really, really cool to see. I am kind of sad maybe that it had to happen, you know, in wartime rather than evolving during peacetime, but I'm still, however it kind of came about and settled here in the United States, I'm super happy about it. So we'll talk a little bit about Jonathan Letterman, who was appointed by Hammond, and he instituted the very first triage system, as well as creating these horse-drawn ambulances. The three-step system for evacuating soldiers from the battlefield as part of the ambulance corps. The very first stop was gather up, you know, all the various wounded and or corpses from the field and bring them to a field dressing station where tourniquets would be applied, wounds would be dressed, and the dead would be sorted from the living or the dead, the nearly dead, the not quite dead, and the getting better (laughs) could all be separated out. This is fantastic. When we do emergency response nowadays, Josh, and I, I got the chance to do a little bit of basic training when I was in residency because my my residency program was a an emergency response center. This is the same kind of basic training that we get, which is, you know, you're just able to find everyone who can walk and and hear you and come put them in one spot. The ones who cannot move go in one spot and then you sort through and by acuity, who needs the most attention first and who has the best chance of being saved if you pay attention to them. That's that's all it is. You, you go by that strict criteria and you're able to very quickly allocate your resources. And that's the big problem, right? You don't have enough bandages and supplies and everything else and and people to address everybody at once. So you have to prioritize. And it's really cool to see that these really simple concepts, they were codified and they were brought up at this time. And dude, in a couple of hundred years, they have not changed. Yeah. So the first stop, field dressing. So tourniquets, basic wounds. Then they would be loaded into one of these horse-drawn ambulances and moved to a field hospital, which was not directly on the field of battle, but only at, at most a short ride a couple miles away. And there, doctors would perform emergency medical procedures, 
at this time, largely amputations. <laughs> was this the era where a lot of people like the the skill of the surgeon was based on like how quickly or how few strokes you could get a leg off or something? Yeah, with a good <laughs> yeah yeah. This this yeah. is the faster you could lop it off, the better a doc you were. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, then, and that would also mean like less pain and trauma for the, the poor patient who is probably awake. And finally, these same ambulances would transport patients to a large hospital far from the battlefield for long-term treatment. And the U.S. military actually uses the same basic system today uh, with, you know, fancier tech. To finish kind of talking about Hammond, one of his most controversial moves as the Surgeon General was to basically outlaw calomel or to remove mercury and antimony-based medications like calomel and tartar emetics from the formulary or the army pharmacy. And for (gasps) centuries... (laughs) <laughs> for centuries, these kinds of medicines have been prescribed for everything from headaches to malaria, and patients vomited dramatically, but as far as Hammond could see, the medication didn't actually do anything. And to make it worse, <laughs> a lot of them came with side effects like, you know, mercurial gangrene. <laughs> this is fantastic. I absolutely love the evolution of this. First, you have you know, statistical method and record keeping. And now you have someone who is smart enough to use it and actually apply this. It was what's called colloquial wisdom. People just quote unquote knew that you, you know, mercury is supposed to work. We've always used it. So why don't we keep using it? And these basic concepts were never challenged. Because nobody had actually done the legwork to say, does this work? Does this change the course of disease in an objective way? (laughs) Now we have one of the first things here. You know, I I think we talked about this, Josh, like just not too far before all of this was Lewis and Clark, right? They had the Surgeon General, Benjamin Rush, I think it was. Benjamin Rush uh, was using calomel and and mercurous chloride and stuff like that in order to help lewis and clark with their bowel problems <laughs> on the way to their westward expansion and you know we talked about to this day you can trace the lewis and clark expedition by looking for the mercury poop <laughs> all the way west but this this was breaking with huge precedence i mean there were giants of the field that had said, you have to use mercury and this is what works. And I'm really happy to see that someone came along and analyzed this and say, no, this is a bad idea. For this, he was court-martialed and removed from his position as Surgeon General. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And this is this is the same thing. Like Not too long ago before this was Ignaz Samelweis over in Vienna telling people to wash their hands. And for that, he was kicked out of the thing and he ended died, up in an insane died asylum. Died poor in an insane asylum. Yeah. Wash your hands. <laughs> this guy, please don't swallow mercury. Fired as Surgeon General. <laughs> it takes it takes just a little bit of gumption sometimes when you know you have the data and you still stick by your guns, even when people are just like, no, you know, you're saying that, I'm kicking you out. 
<laughs> so for those of you frustrated with the slow pace or the denial of basic reality in medicine today, it's nothing new. The yeah. need for evidence wasn't really embraced by a lot of doctors at that time. Yeah, yeah. So, however, despite that, one of the other things he did manage to create were pavilion-style general hospitals, which were set up like spokes of a wheel. So a central hub, each ward housing or each arm of the tent would house a ward for different diseases and conditions such as typhoid or malaria to prevent their spread. So you put all your malaria people in one wing. You put all your typhoid people in another wing, all your cannonball injuries in another. So doctors may not have known about germs, but they did associate fresh air with good health. So these hospitals were constructed with a lot of ventilation. And by 1865, over 200 hospitals of this kind had been built with over 135,000 beds as opposed to simply just taking over the local inn, tavern, or whatever building was in the area and turning it into a makeshift hospital. These were built as hospitals from the beginning, and that also was instituted by Hammond. So he had a huge effect on how designs would be going, because even now, Santosh, I think both our hospitals are set up a little bit in some of this pod setting where you have different wings, even if we just think of it as the ICU or the cardiac care unit or the regular wards, you still have different conditions get different sections of the hospital. Yeah. And we actually have a very, very modern example of this and it's COVID, right? So we have isolation rooms, uh, mostly in our intensive care unit that we've had a, for a very, very long time. But now we have cohorting rooms for the COVID cases. And I'm sure you have this too, Josh, you have a COVID unit. And so not only do we have that set up just like that, the, the hub in the center where now the nurses center is, right? So you have all the monitors and workstations in one spot and the ICU is spread out like spokes on a wheel so that someone can stand up and go straight to a room at any point, just you know, a, a straight shot instead of having to go down a hall or something. And that setup allows people to not only get care specific to them, but then you can take nurses and doctors who are specialized in that treatment, and they know how to put on their isolation gowns and their masks and stuff. They're, they're experts at donning and doffing their, their protective equipment. And they also have a good way, a very straight shot way, to get those patients in and out of the hospital and to different areas without spreading COVID like everywhere down the hallway <laughs> while you're transporting them as a, for instance, if they need to go get a CT of their chest or something like that. So yeah, these are old, old concepts coming all the way back to 2020 and working really beautifully. Now, there were a couple conditions that were relatively new because military technology was advancing, not just in terms of medicine, but also in terms of killing. So <laughs> some of the advancements led to new injuries. And there's a great article from uh, one of the earliest issues of the New England Journal of Medicine called A Disease Wind of Cannonballs. And, <laughs> okay. And an article entitled Wind of Cannonballs describes a syndrome in which a cannonball passes near a person, mind you, not hitting them, 
which is very well okay. documented even today, that produced <laughs> at that time the tearing of epaulettes and buttons from clothes, producing extensive lividity or kind of bruising of that part of the body near which the ball has passed, causing sudden or gradual blindness, fracturing the bones without tearing the skin. And then a few pages later, there's also a report of spontaneous combustion of brandy drinking men and women. So, you know, <laughs> take it well, with a grain I- of salt. But the point being... <laughs> okay. Which is, by the way, they, they probably as- ascribe this to spontaneous combustion, which almost 100% was people with a pipe and then getting overly drunk and then falling down and probably their alcohol soaked clothing or something around them lighting up on fire and then consuming them like kind of like a candle wick and leaving ashes so you know it, it's a, it's an okay assumption if you never actually saw the person you know but wind of cannonballs almost sounds like even though they were not traveling at you know breaking sound barrier speeds having a rapidly moving object pass within millimeters of you simply the sonic waves probably did cause some minor lacerations of soft organs or bruising so it's an interesting thing that unfortunately we don't really get to study because it doesn't exist anymore (laughs) thankfully yeah (laughs) like shockwave kind of injury absolutely yeah but all of these injuries whether it was from wind of cannonballs or the actual cannonballs themselves meant as you noted earlier santosh a whole host of amputations in the years during and immediately following the civil war and that advanced the field of surgery and specifically trauma surgery by a lot even creating the field of plastic surgery in the America as you started to do a lot of facial reconstructions. But let's talk briefly about anesthesia. It wasn't just being handed a jug with three X's on it. When available, chloroform was the go-to on Civil War battlefields, and that's because ether, which was also in existence, was extremely flammable. So... Yeah. Okay. Now, ether or chloroform, regard whichever one you happen to have handy, was usually applied via cotton balls, a handkerchief, or whatever, but this wasted a lot of the drug. You know, you have to soak a whole cotton ball or a handkerchief and then tie it to somebody, and a lot of these alcohols are very quick evaporating or quick drying. So you really would use up what limited supply you had very, very quick. So sure. One of the things that was invented that saved a lot of soldiers from excruciating pain, and when I say a lot, I mean something on the order of like 95% of those who endured surgery, was the anesthesia inhaler invented just before the war and deployed as field hospitals came up, which it looked like, how do I even describe this? Whatever. (laughs) So it's basically, it was a small triangular thing where you would load the chloroform or ether or just kind of the soaked rag. And then it had a large mouthpiece that you would hold in front of you that sealed off your nose and mouth, very similar to our non-rebreathers in the hospital today, but just with a small tin full of drugs on the other end. And this design enabled medical staff to rapidly give chloroform to multiple soldiers with as little waste as possible And a modern variant of that is still used with superior intoxicants before and during surgeries, again, in a combat situation. 
Now, sure, sure. This is just whatever you had on hand, but this is, a, this is a nice little design. Now, one of the coolest things I learned about was the Civil War X-ray. <laughs> okay. I'm guessing this isn't actual X-rays. No, because X-rays hadn't really been discovered yet. Yeah. M- Marie Curie okay. hadn't done all her, her seminal work. So instead, a Civil War X-ray was a tuning fork. Okay. If you hit a tuning fork and run it along a bone, you can actually hear the change in tone where the bone has a fracture. Oh, neat. Okay, so like the resonance will change. Yeah. Also, applying a shaking tuning fork directly to a fracture would be extremely painful. And that (laughs) also had, I'm sure, some some effect on it but imagine if you're looking for micro fractures and you kind of run and you're listening and you hear the change in tone would actually indicate there's where your fracture is and would tell the surgeons where to apply tourniquets or place the splints and the idea that you could use sound to find inside bone like ultrasound and x-ray all in one that concept sure, sure. is amazing, and I'm shocked that we don't still use some version of it. The, well, I mean, we we kind of do. You can use bedside ultrasound in order to detect a fracture if, for one reason or another, uh, you have uh, issues getting a person a, a plain film and ultrasound in order to detect the fracture if you know how to use it properly. Um, and some of this work looking at joints, for instance, with ultrasound has been done here in Los Angeles at UCLA and kids for rheumatoid arthritis. So that's really, really awesome that you can use this. It's visualized, of course. You you use a, a, a visual representation of the sound waves to come back using ultrasound, but it's the same exact uh, idea. That's That's really, really cool. Right? I thought that was probably the neatest thing I learned out of all the different ones. And that's because, again, tuning forks, of course, emit a constant frequency when struck. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into You may be aware there were two sides in the Civil War. <laughs> there, there were. There was the right side and the ones that wanted to keep slavery. Sure. <laughs> I felt like I needed to spell it out, Santosh, because after all, some of us don't even know when the Civil War was. Oh, you ass. Fine. Fine. (laughs) So at the height of the Civil War, when one of the sides, the Confederacy, was losing, they simply did not have access to a lot of these medical supplies like chloroform, ether, and basic, well, what passed for antibiotics back then because there was a Union blockade. And they simply weren't able to obtain them. So the Confederate Surgeon General released a guide of traditional plant remedies from the South that battlefield physicians could draw upon when faced with shortages of conventional medicine. Nice. Okay. Now, today, Emory's Center for the Study of Human Health and the School of Medicine's Department of Dermatology is actually studying the plants in this guide to see what kind of antiseptic properties they have, and if we can make use of them in modern-day medicine. Cassandra Quave, senior author of the paper, looked at three of the plants, the white oak, Quercus alba, the tulip Mm -hmm. poplar, Liriodendron tulipifera, and the devil's walking stick, 
Great name. Aralia oh, Spinoza. Okay. All now, right. Here's where, here's where you'll get to have some fun. The team found that extracts from these three plants specifically have significant antimicrobial properties in the face of three species of multi-drug resistant bacteria, Staph aureus, Klebsiella pneumonia, and Acinobacter baumani, which are all often seen in wound-associated infections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Staph aureus, of course, everywhere. Absolutely ubiquitous on the skin. And if you have a break in the skin, it gets in pretty quickly. Acinetobacter, very abundant in water and soil and mud. So if you're getting wounded in mud, which if you were in the Civil War, there was friggin' mud everywhere. It was crazy. And then the final one's a little bit of a weirdo, Klebsiella. So um, Klebsiella, generally we think of gut flora, and then if you vomit it up, it can get into your lungs and that kind of a thing. So I'm a little surprised at the uh, the Klebsiella, but still, it, it's good that it, it acts against it, because definitely if you have an abdominal wound, for instance, right? If you have... Uh, the uh, the 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 wound that where you have a bullet wound to the to the stomach and then you get sepsis from your intestines bursting in there it would be super super useful this is neat and this makes a ton of sense right be- before you had any kind of double blinded testing and all these kind of things you had people who were just doing their best to just try things, Josh, <laughs> you know, you have, all right, I have a bunch of wounds over here. Let me just try these plants. Oh, you know what? I was able to save X number of people and those people all got this particular plant. So let's label this plant as good for this type of a wound. And a lot of those either coincidentally or with just a lot of experience, right? Just using them over and over were fantastic. And, and, you know, we shouldn't write them off just because they're old. Yeah, so Francis Pyra Porcher was commissioned by the Confederacy, set about detailing alternatives to essential but lacking medicine. Porcher was a botanist by trade and a surgeon from South Carolina, and this book, still in print today, represents a compilation of medicinal plants in the southern states, including a lot of remedies used by Native Americans and enslaved Africans. Modern day paper was published in the journal Nature Scientific, and the really cool thing, Santosh, about the three plants I told you is that American Civil War plant medicines inhibit growth, which we knew. So they weren't outright bactericidal, where they killed the infections, but they were bacteriostatic, meaning they stopped the bacteria from expanding out anymore or becoming uber powerful. And when I say uber powerful, it also prevented biofilm formation and quorum sensing. Can you define those two terms for us? Biofilms in a really simple sense is slime. <laughs> okay. So we think about it when you have a something kind of a prosthetic inside of your body. So a central venous access line or a, uh, a, a heart valve, for instance, bacteria gets on there and they form a little layer of goop of slime that they can hide in and evade 
antibiotics and evade immune cells because it's just an acellular kind of layer that they can stay inside of. So this is one of the banes of our existence, right? Because once a bacteria gets in there, you can throw antibiotics all day. But as soon as the antibiotics come off, there's still bacteria hanging out and living inside of that biofilm ready to grow up and kind of explode back into an infection. The other part is the quorum sensing, and that kind of goes along with it. Quorum sensing is the bacteria's ability to sense how many bacteria there are in an immediate vicinity. This is really important because essentially the bacteria don't want, quote unquote, to create an infection. They just want to be able to grow and eat and then divide and, and create more bacteria. That's all they're trying to do. And so all really any of us are trying to do, Santosh. Yeah. <laughs> just grow, eat, divide, and sense bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> And and sense our, our own people. But just like if you and I and a bunch of other people were living in one place and we used up all the resources there, so the food, the water and everything, and we were starting to poop in our own water supply and stuff, like pretend you're at Burning Man, right? So <laughs> now the, the hippies at Burning Man or the, the whatever they call the hipsters, now you know you have to leave because you can't stay in the same place. You'll get sick from the waste products. You don't have enough nutrition in order to divide and grow. So quorum sensing in bacteria is the same kind of ability for the bacteria to say, hey, there are enough of us here or there are too many of us here. So we either shut down our growth which is one response that they can do, or they can tell the bacteria to get get out of here, to, to change forms a little bit so that they can swim away off into the bloodstream or whatever it is and leave the little biofilm or nest of original bacteria and find another place to grow. In, in our case, it means a metastatic infection. They go off to go and infect another tissue. So those two things are really, really important. If you can shut down quorum sensing, bacteria will overgrow and just kind of eat themselves out of house and home. If you can destroy a biofilm, that means you can take care of little hidden caches of bacteria and wipe them out really quickly. So these plants dating back to the use in local to the Americas during the Civil War – still have some of these effects and we can now study them in more depth to figure out if in this post-antibiotic world they could still have applications to stall or kill bacteria. Now, moving on to another interest another good discovery or create and moving on to another invention from the Confederate side, one Confederate soldier, James Edward Hanger, was wounded early in the war during the Battle of Philippi. Philippi? Philippi. Amidst the chaos, <laughs> a cannonball, not its wind, a cannonball struck his left knee, shattering his leg, and Aww. he had to have it amputated. When, it when he returned home, he disappeared into isolation. His family assumed he was just depressed and didn't want anyone to see him in the state he was in. After all, about 1 in 13 soldiers from the Civil War ended up suffering an amputation. And while Hanger was depressed, however, he approached this isolation from a creative angle. His missing leg was a problem to solve, so he began to fashion a homemade prosthetic out of barrel staves 
and rubber tendons, <laughs> and his design, his design named the hanger limb, was drastically different than traditional peg legs. You know, prior to this, prosthetics were just the pirate peg leg. That's it. Here's if you were lucky, if you were lucky, people would shape it for you and make it pretty, so it wasn't just a peg. So it would look vaguely foot-like. But Hanger's prosthetic included hinges around the knee and ankle, allowing a more natural gait, and this innovation revolutionized the field of prosthetics, catapulting him the following year to start a business in Virginia, distributing artificial limbs to those in need. Then he got a a state contract to produce it for all of Virginia, and then in New York, and even today, the Hanger company is one of the leading makers of prosthetic limbs. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, irony, I guess, or very appropriate that it's like a hanger, <laughs> it's just hanging on kind of thing. But I love this concept because just he, he put those tendons in such that when you lifted the from the hip, right, the knee would bend at the appropriate angle. So you didn't have to do that kind of full flail of your leg to kind of bring it around and then step and support on it, you could move your leg back and forth, you know, from behind you to in front of you um, as a natural step. And your knee, if the tendons, those tendons that you were talking about were at the right tension, they would flex properly and allow you to set your foot down and have a, a regular stride. And we don't think about this a lot, uh, I think those of us who don't have amputations, but it is so important to try to have as natural a step as possible, as you know, especially lower extremities. You have a foot because for people to allow themselves to get back to their regular activities and reincorporate themselves into the world after a war or something, this is absolutely huge. This concept, Josh, the way that it was structured lived on for a really long time until the advent of rather modern prosthetics. And like I said, this this company started by just one guy bummed out that a cannonball took out his leg is still <laughs> one of the leading makers of prosthetics. So, so neat. let's wrap up with a final story of Civil War, a little bit medicine, a little bit folklore. In mm-hmm. 1862, after the Battle of Shiloh, medical personnel noticed a strange blue glow in the wounds of soldiers from that fight, both Confederate and Union. I love this one so much. I know we've talked about it before, but I love it so much. The mysterious light baffled the doctors even more when they noted that soldiers whose wounds glowed actually had a better survival rate than those without the illuminated injuries, which prompted most of them, which prompted many at the time to call the phenomenon angels glow, indicating that celestial beings had come down and chosen these soldiers to heal on both sides with heavenly light. And it took almost 140 years for two teenagers and a microbiologist mother to find the more earthly explanation. So Santosh, what was that earthly explanation? (laughs) I love that we're getting into an era of microbiology. We've got germ theory coming. It's still over on the other shores. Louis Pasteur is 
working through it, but it wouldn't be until 1880 when Robert Cook came around and actually identified these little wee beasties and, and started thinking about the differences between bacteria and fungi, later on viruses. But <laughs> dude, I absolutely love this. When we were able to get a microscope on these things, just not too much longer, we found out that this was a bacteria inside of a worm. <laughs> the 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 people who took a look at it and actually did the microbiology on it, it was a bioluminescent microbe. And the that glow was the bioluminescence given off by it. You could see it in the dark. But it's not that it was doing anything for the wound just by the glow. It was actually that it was creating... I think uh, uh, antimicrobial compounds. Is that correct? So uh, minor modification. What happens is the bacteria, P. luminescence, lives inside okay. a nematode. And the nematode okay. lives inside this soil in and around the battlefield. Now, the gotcha. nematode feeds on... Oh, by on... the way, nematode for anyone, like tiny, tiny worm. Now, these nematodes feed on insects like mosquitoes, flies, basically a lot of the disease vector insects. So what would happen, or what they theorized, is that these soldiers have open wounds, which are going to attract insects. They're lying in this cold, dirty soil, which gives an access to the nematodes. The nematodes crawl up into the wound, into the wound, and the bacteria in the nematodes helps to kill off the insects that would otherwise have been infecting the wounds, and they let off a glow while they're doing it because that's what the bacteria does. Also, it's cold and in early Tennessee, so or it's cold. It's Tennessee in early February. It's cold as all get out. But when these soldiers are removed from this cold, damp battlefield and taken to a hospital, their bodies warm up. They're no longer hypothermic. So the nematode dies, the glow fades away, but the bacteria in the nematode also dies now, but had been preventing some of the more serious wound-infecting bacteria to get in and give these soldiers sepsis. So they basically got one infection from laying in the dirt that caused a glow that kept all the other infections at bay by eating them. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. I thought it was maybe like antimicrobial compounds and stuff, but this is just straight like chewing on bacteria. Uh, So it kills off some competing microbes, but essentially... These were small worms that feed on insects, and this was all discovered by two 17-year-olds who won a science fair with this discovery because they're like, hey, I wonder if the glowing blue could be the same as this bacteria glowing blue that my mom studies, and it was. So... (laughs) I love that so much, and this is a concept that it, it, it was all the way going to you know, the 1940s, when we had Fleming coming up with, uh, you know, antimicrobials and stuff, they found microbes fighting microbes. And that was the advent of the very first antibiotics, you know, after we got rid of all of the like mercury and arsenic stuff. <laughs> but this is this is so cool. I absolutely love this. 
because there's a beautiful association again here between a good observation and then scientific rigorous investigation as to what the cause is, not just accepting this as superstition or stopping their investigation. They kept asking why. That's it for our Civil War medicine episode. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe out there, and if by some chance you have the ability to, happy travels! Bye, everybody! catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.